0: For millennia, people have tried to answer the question, what is the meaning of life? Actually, that's not entirely true. Uh, The specific question, what's the meaning of life, Uh, was really written in the 19th century. So it's it's a fairly recent question in terms of the way that question is initially phrased. However, Greek philosophers for the past 2,000 years or over 2,000 years ago were pursuing a very similar question. You see, Platonists, they argued that what you should do in life is seek to acquire deep knowledge. Antithesis argued that the purpose of life was to live a life of virtue that was consistent with nature. Douglas Adams argued that the meaning of life was 42. (laughs) What is the meaning of life? What's the purpose in life? Today, we're going to be in the book of Matthew. And as we dig into the book of Matthew, I want you to see that meaning of life comes from Christ-likeness, representing God to creation and finding one's identity in Christ. We're going to do our Scripture memory verse of the month to kick off. The Scripture memory verse is from Matthew chapter 1, verse 23. Would you recite this with me? Matthew 1, 23. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Matthew 1, Today we'll be in Matthew chapter 5, so if you want to turn over just a couple pages to Matthew chapter 5, we're going to begin with just verses 1 and 2. And then from there, we'll dig in and really set the stage. So Matthew 5, starting in verse 1, if you would read this with me, it says, Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside and sat down, his disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. Jesus began to teach them. Now, Matthew 5 comes after Matthew 4. I studied real hard for that one which comes after 3, 2, and 1. Matthew is set up in a very organized fashion. The book begins with the genealogy. It proceeds with Jesus' birth, moves to his baptism, his testing in the wilderness, and then introduces Jesus as somebody who's worth following. It is only at this point that Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew, begins the Sermon on the Mount only after really establishing that Jesus is somebody worth following, somebody worth listening to. So what is it that Jesus teaches in Matthew chapter 5? There's lots of people who have debated what exactly the purpose of the Sermon on the Mount is. In fact, there are as many as 36 different interpretations of the Sermon on the Mount. 36 different interpretations. Most of them are incredibly nuanced, little details. Here's what I want you to see, what I think makes the most sense. The Sermon on the Mount actually is about the meaning of life. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is presenting how to live a meaningful life. Ultimately, I think the Sermon on the Mount has an eschatological fulfillment. In our fallen state, we are incapable of completely living according to the Sermon on the Mount. Because we're fallen humans. One day, God will sanctify us, and we will be capable of this, and we will be able to have full meaning in life. But up until this point, we can strive towards this eschatological ideal. What does it look like to live life in a way that has satisfaction unmatched, unrivaled by any other way of living? Keep that in the back of your mind as we read Matthew 5, verses 3 through 12. He said, it's Jesus, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus was born to teach, born to show us how to live. And the first thing that I see is that meaning in life comes from Christ-likeness. Meaning in life comes from christ likeness we could dig into each of these and probably spend an entire sermon on each one of these we're not going to do that today i want to think just a little more broadly and paint with slightly broader strokes what i want you to see is that there's actually in verses 3 through 12 there are three groups three things that really define all of these passages together the first group is in verses 3 through 5 and the theme there is humility Humility is the key to living a meaningful life. This flies in the face of everything, but it's true. Humility is the key to living a meaningful life. The first blessing that we see from Jesus is blessed are the poor in spirit. Why? These are individuals who are forced to rely on God. Doesn't mean they're necessarily poor. Doesn't mean they're necessarily rich. No, these are individuals who know that their source of joy will only come from God. And so they rely on God in a full spiritual sense. They don't believe that in themselves is some greatness that can overcome any challenge. No, they believe that in God is a greatness that can overcome any challenge. They don't believe that they know the answer to every question, though they believe that they can turn to God for true wisdom. They are poor and destitute in spirit. But theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In 2 Corinthians 12, 9, Paul Begging Jesus to remove the thorn in the flesh is told, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We see blessed are those who mourn. When I translated this, I actually prefer the word lament. Mourn has a lot of baggage associated with it. We mourn the death of someone. And that certainly is appropriate, but lament is also a valid word here, and lament doesn't necessarily have all that baggage with it. You don't have to simply lament a death. You certainly should when this happens, but this is really any hardship, and the picture here is of somebody who is carrying a heavy burden. Blessed are those who have an emotional burden to carry on their shoulders, Why? Because they are comforted. Comfort is promised to those. In verse 5, we see blessings on the meek. Meekness is not weakness. No, the picture here is of a horse that's been broken. Incredible power. Under complete control at all times. Blessed are the meek. The first grouping tells us that humility is the key to living a meaningful life. The second set, verses 6 through 8, tell us that recognizing the need for holiness brings deeper meaning to life. We see those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. That's the idea of striving to do what is good in God's eyes. We are not under the law. If you choose not to tithe, you are not sent to hell for that choice. That's plain and simple the way it is. Now, we should strive for righteousness. Why? Because it brings deeper meaning to life. There's the promise for those who hunger after righteousness that they'll be filled and the picture there is of complete satisfaction the choice to say filled if you seek righteousness god will fill you that's the picture that we're supposed to have there the merciful those are individuals who come to the defense of others the pure in heart It's an idea of a complete devotion to God. Pure in heart means completely devoted to God. He is your first love in the sense that he takes first place. Matthew 22, later Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. So we've got humility. We've got holiness. And then the next meaning in life, a fallen world should not keep you from meaning in life. That's the grouping that I see next. Jesus says, strive for humility, strive for holiness, and recognize that the world is fallen, but that shouldn't keep you from meaning in life. Violence is present all around us. People are mean. People are spiteful. Self-centered. And that's just the beginning. We live in a fallen world. But Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. Those who strive for peace. Blessed are those who are persecuted. Blessed are you when you are insulted. Jesus came and brought peace. Jesus was persecuted. Jesus was insulted. Jesus lived the most meaningful life ever. If you don't believe me, just look at how many people were impacted by that life. Our goal should be Christ-likeness. What is the meaning in life? The meaning in life is to live as Christ lived. Humble. Holy. In the midst of a fallen and broken world. First action step for the day. Determine to pursue Christ-likeness as the source of meaning in your life. Determine to find meaning in your pursuit of Christ-likeness. Let your pursuit of Christ-likeness be the things that define your life. Let it be your aim and your goal. I want to go, though, further in the passage. And what I want to tell you in verses 13 through 16, which we're going to read here in just a little bit, is that meaning in life comes from representing God to creation. Meaning in life comes from representing God to creation. I am not the world's biggest Star Trek person. I enjoy it, but it's not my passion. It is other people's in this room's passion, so when I mess something up, sorry. But in Star Trek, there is the prime directive. Okay? The Prime Directive is a rule in the Star Trek universe that states that Starfleet personnel and spacecraft may not interfere in the normal development of any society. What the rule is, is it says that if you encounter a world and they're not culturally advanced, you're not allowed to artificially advance them. And the Prime Directive permeates Star Trek to the point that you even may have to sacrifice your life and the life of your crew so that you don't contaminate a culture. That's the Star Trek universe. Do you know that Christians also, though, have a prime directive? We have, as Christians, a prime directive, and it couldn't be any further from the Star Trek prime directive. Let's go to Genesis 1 briefly here. Genesis 1... 26 through 27, is our prime directive. God, speaking, says, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image, In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. The prime directive that God gave to mankind is very, very simple. We are to represent God to creation. And as such, creation should be, must be impacted by our presence. Whereas in Star Trek, the prime directive is don't make a difference. In the real world, the prime directive is get down there and represent God. Make a difference. Do what God would do. Let's read in Matthew 5, verses 13 through 16. Jesus says, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Our prime directive is to represent God. We satisfy our prime directive by being a positive influence within our world. You want meaning in life? Meaning in life happens when you do the things that God created you to do. God created you to bear his image to the world. We satisfy our prime directive by being that positive, godly influence. The first comparison that's made is to salt. Salt in the ancient world had a variety of uses. It was a preservative. You add it to food to make the food last longer. It also added flavor. It brings out flavor. By the way, salt has the same use today. Ancient salt was often harvested, especially in that region, from the Dead Sea. But as a result of that, it had a lot of impurities potentially present within it. And the impurities of other minerals and organic compounds in the Dead Sea could make the salt ineffective for use. You could get salt that really had no function, did not preserve food, did not bring out flavor. And so what did they do with such salt? Threw it onto the road because at least it created a nice road base. If the salt knew our prime directive, we have failed in our fundamental purpose. You want meaning in life? Pursue God's prime directive. Salt. When we find God's goodness present. We should be striving to preserve that. I could go into all the details of what it looks like, but that's what the Bible's for. It tells us who God is. And so we read it and we know how to preserve godliness in our world. But also, salt brings out the flavor. We don't just sit idly and preserve goodness. We also bring out, we emphasize goodness. We draw attention to goodness. Also though, Unless you're like seven years old, salt is never the main course. (laughs) And usually it's sugar or butter if you're seven. But salt is not the main course. We are not God in the world. We are here to bring out, to show God in the world. Jesus went on in verses 14 and 16 with another example. We satisfy our prime directive by pointing others to God. The Bible teaches throughout itself that God is light. Psalms 18.12, 104.2, 1 Timothy 6.16 all describe God as light. We as Christ followers, have been given the opportunity to reflect Christ's likeness to the world. Literally, we're given the opportunity to represent God to the world. And this is our function. What does it mean that we are created in God's image? I think fundamentally what it means is that we are the image bearers We are the ones that are intended to communicate who God is to our world. So, let me turn this into an action step. Determine to appropriately represent God. What does that look like, though, as an action step? Does this affect my ability to be devoted to Christ? Ask yourself that question. Whenever you're going to do something, how does this affect the world's view of Christ? How does this affect my ability to be, to be devoted to Christ? Can't say it today. That's the question we should be consistently asking ourselves. Is am I appropriately representing God? Is this how God would Behave? Is this what Jesus would do? The next section, verses 17 through 20, tell us that meaning in life comes through identity in Christ. <clears throat> meaning in life comes when you make your identity Christ. One of my favorite sort of, uh, I guess I would call it theoretical words or fun words to use is the word paradigm. Paradigm. A paradigm is a means or a lens through which you construct and put together a bunch of pieces of information to make it fit. Think of it as the paradigm is how all the puzzle pieces fit together. So in the world of like math and physics, we talk about different paradigms of ways of explaining all of these and how they fit together to make one overarching theory, and we call that a paradigm. And then when somebody comes up with something new, it's called a paradigm shift, because we've got a new way of looking at this that we never used before. Well, I want to give you a paradigm for Scripture. So here is the paradigm, the overarching story of Scripture. God created mankind to represent him, to bear his image to creation. Almost immediately, mankind failed in the most epic way we possibly could by doing something God would never do, sin. We had marred the image. We have broken the image. But that didn't change what our job was, which was to bear God's image, even though we had marred that image. So God, throughout Scripture, gives man tasks of bearing his image. Abraham, leave that land and prepare yourself. I'm going to call out of you a special people. You're going to bear my image. Here. Let me give your descendants a bunch of rules so that you understand the sorts of things that God would do in these circumstances. And you would get the law. Oh, you failed. Literally before Moses gets down off the mountain. All right, let me give it to you again. Oh, you got into the land and you failed. Let me send you a prophet to tell you how to bear my image. You continued to fail. All right, let me pull you out of the land. And give you some prophets to teach you how to bear my image. Now I'll put you back in the land. You're going to bear my image. And you continued to fail. Finally, God comes up. I say that like he just came up with it. No, it was God's plan all along. But God comes up with the ultimate solution to this problem. He himself comes. Because who is more qualified to bear God's image than God himself? He himself comes and finally bears his image to creation, represents God to creation in the form of Jesus himself. Born to teach. Born to show the world who God is. Born Emmanuel, God with us. That is the paradigm of scripture. Time and time again, we fail to bear God's image. So what does God do? God himself comes and bears his own image. In the most perfect way, dying on the cross, sacrificing everything so that we might be with him. Let's read verses 17 through 20. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. What is the point? Jesus accomplished what we could never do. Keeping God's law perfectly. He finished what God had given us to start and that which we failed to represent God. Therefore, Righteousness can only come from identity in Christ. Because we failed and we continue to fail, Jesus came and fulfilled our mission and then invites us to take on his fulfillment as our identity. You could never do it on your own, we always fail. But Jesus did. How often have you personally tried to be holy and then noticed right away how quick you fail? But Jesus succeeded. One of the biggest questions that the Pharisees were asking Jesus was whether or not he came to abolish the Old Testament. Did you come to wipe away all of these rules that we've been trying to follow? And Jesus' answer is really simple. No, I came to do what you failed to do. I came to keep it 100% because you couldn't. Jesus uses a play on words. Says, not one iota. Iota is the smallest letter in the manuscules of the Greek New Testament. So New Testament Greek. We have our Greek alphabet that we look at. New Testament was written all in capital letters called manuscripts. The manuscripts, the iota, or yoda, depending on how you want to pronounce it, is just one line, just a, a quick tick. Jesus says, I fulfilled it down to the smallest single line. Interestingly, oftentimes, that single line is the difference between a present tense and a future tense in Greek grammar. Down to the smallest detail, Jesus fulfilled the law. So does this mean that we go live however we want? No, because our identity is in Christ, and the point of 19 and 20. Eternal life comes only from identity in Christ. Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees. He's not saying, try harder. Okay? If I told you, you know, you told me you wanted to be a runner, and I said, great, until you complete a one-minute mile, we're not going to talk. You wouldn't say, I guess I better train hard. No. You're not going to do it. No one is. And that's what Jesus is saying. Nobody is going to be righteous by following the law. If it could be done, it would have been done by the Pharisees. No, Jesus is saying, only by identifying with me can you have eternal life. Only by identifying with me can you have meaning in life. Let me give you an action step. Celebrate Christmas by placing your identity in Christ. What does this look like? First, if you have spent your life striving for righteousness, to earn your way to heaven, to earn your way to Jesus, recognize that that's doomed to fail. We can't. Our prime directive, our prime directive, was to represent God to creation, and we fail, day in and day out. The penalty for failure is death, separation from God. If in "Star Trek," Captain Kirk walks up and says, "You know, I tried really hard, but I just completely corrupted this culture." Oh, well, but I tried really hard. It's not going to go over well. No, you messed up. That's us. We messed up. Our only solution is Jesus. If you have not placed that initial identity in Jesus, that trust in Jesus's righteousness as payment for your failures, that's step one. But I know that many, many, most here today have already done that step So my question is, are you making your identity Christ? What is your identity? That might be the first question to ask. Who are you? Who do you think you are? Are you one who first and foremost follows Christ? If not, this Christmas, make that your identity. We must recognize that Jesus came to give us meaning in life. And he accomplished that with his own life. Let's choose to identify with that life. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that you came and did what we could never do. You taught us how to live. You showed us what meaning in life looks like. In the Sermon on the Mount, you begin explaining so much, teaching so much of what it looks like to have a life, a meaningful life. But Time and time again, we fail. And so I pray that we would turn to you to find our identity. Whether that is making the decision to trust you and your righteousness, or whether that's making the decision to trust you and follow you for meaning. May we follow Emmanuel, God with us, born to teach us to live, born to die that we might live. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.